Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast. And if that's you, welcome home. I'm back. (laughs) Oh my goodness, it feels so good to officially be back on the grind. I'm a bit nervous to tell you the truth. Feels like my first day of school after a long summer break. I keep thinking, will the true crime army still like me? (laughs) Well, I sure hope so because I have a heck of a lineup of cases coming up. From spooky cases that make you cringe down in New Orleans to missing military spouses overseas and even a case about a fugitive on the U.S. Marshals top 15 list. I have it all. So I hope you have clicked that follow button because if you do, you will be the first notified when episodes are released, which are usually every Monday at the butt crack of dawn, okay? Also, just some housekeeping. I want you all to know I do have a fan club. The fan club is a place for you to get more, I repeat, more content, yes. For just $5 a month, you can have access to up to 14 full bonus episodes right now. I tend to choose pretty obscure cases for the fan club, stuff that you're not going to hear about on a hundred other podcasts. So if you love the show, you want more, and you'd like to support the show while you're at it, then head on over to my Patreon. There's a link in the show notes, but you can also just visit patreon.com slash military murder. Now on with the show. Today's case is what horror movies are made of. Think the boogeyman. When we hear cases like this, we think of cases from the 70s, think the Golden State Killer, or the 90s, the Gainesville Ripper. But today's case is ripped from the headlines from just three weeks ago. It's a nightmare of a case, a case that gave me pangs in the pit of my stomach and had me considering how could I have kept my family safe in a situation like this? I will be discussing some pretty distressing scenes and actions today. So if that's not your scene, skip this episode and maybe the next few episodes. This case also involves the mention of mental health issues and other triggering topics. I'm not a doctor, so I will not be discussing whether one thing led to the other, but I am hoping to be able to bring someone onto the show soon who can actually discuss this topic since people seem to bring it up all the time. Just as a reminder that due to the fact that this case is an active case, These are just allegations as reported in Sheriff Department press releases and court papers, and the person charged is innocent until proven guilty in court. Join me today as I discuss a quadruple murder in Florida over the Labor Day holiday. Now, let's dig in. My main sources for this episode are press conferences held by the Polk County Sheriff's Office, specifically Sheriff Judd Grady, who I may or may not have a secret crush on. He's such an engaging speaker. It's like a mix between listening to a pastor preach on Sunday 
and listening to your favorite true crime podcast. I do think that Sheriff Grady has a future in one or both of these professions. I've never really sat through a press conference as engaged as I did for these. But watching these press conferences, I mean, I felt like I was watching a full-blown narrated episode of something on investigation discovery. Anyway, additional sources include the actual complaint affidavit and articles in the Daily Beast, Tulsa World, and CBS News. So the scene for this episode is Lakeland, Florida. Lakeland is a city in Florida that is a part of the Tampa Bay area. Its population isn't very big, with about 112,000 residents. So it was Sunday, September 5th, 2021. At about 4.22 in the morning, Lieutenant Tompkins was patrolling on the intersection of I-98 North and Duff Road. While Lieutenant Tompkins was on patrol, he heard two loud and very fast bursts of gunfire. Lieutenant Tompkins knew something was wrong, so he called it in as he followed the noise into a neighborhood, which was just about two miles away from where he was originally. Now, Sheriff Grady described the area that Lieutenant Tompkins entered as a mix between rural and suburban. As soon as Lieutenant Tompkins called it in, the 911 dispatcher began to receive various calls about an active shooter. There were loud gunshots in the area, so authorities knew something big was going on. When Tompkins arrived in the unincorporated section of Lakeland on North Socrum Loop Road, he saw a black Ford F-150 that was on fire. But no one ever describes the size of this car fire. But the officer also saw glow sticks that were on the ground and leading into a home. The officer looked at the home and immediately spotted a man in full camo gear, including this guy was wearing a bulletproof vest, including knee and elbow pads. But the officer didn't see a weapon in the man's hands. And as soon as the man saw the officer, he bolted inside. After just a few seconds, Lieutenant Tompkins heard more gunshots and he decided to make his way into the home. He tried to make entry through the front door, but it was barricaded. He then approached the home from the rear. And by this point, police backup was already present. The officer entered the home to engage the shooter and a gun battle ensued between the cops and the gunman. Lieutenant Tompkins returned fire as he retreated into the backyard somewhere. Simultaneously, officers are in the front of the house and they're pinned down between the gunfire. But eventually, officers in the street lay down protective fire to allow the officers at the front to retreat. All of the officers safely retreat and plan their entry. Minutes later, however, the same man they saw earlier entering the home. Well, that man was no longer wearing his armor as he nonchalantly walked out of the house with his arms up. He surrendered. The man was quickly taken down and cuffed and officers saw that he was bleeding. He had actually been shot during the gun battle. Just then, officers hear a faint voice from inside calling for help. Officers at this point, they're afraid that the house might actually be booby-trapped. But according to Sheriff Grady, an officer instinctively and very bravely ran inside to find an 11-year-old little girl who had been shot multiple times. She was immediately removed from the house but not before informing police that there were three dead people inside. The child was swiftly taken to Tampa General Hospital, about 35 miles away, where she underwent four surgeries throughout the days that followed. But the child was expected to make a full recovery. She had seven bullet holes in her tiny little body. And at the time of the last press release, which was on September 9th of 2021, Authorities were not sure if she was actually shot seven separate times 
or if some of the shots were entry and exit wounds. The alleged perpetrator was taken to the hospital to be treated for his own injury. Along the way, he made some babbling statements to police to include that he had just used meth earlier that day. And while he was at the ER, the perpetrator became erratic and attempted to disarm an officer and he had to be held down and I'm assuming he had to be sedated. Back at the scene, officers cleared the house and they walked into a complete nightmare of a scene. Inside the home, the little girl was correct. There were three dead people. But in another structure on the same property, they found a fourth victim. So what exactly happened? Well, that's what the sheriff's department had to determine. Was this a family argument gone terribly wrong? Who was this family? Who was the killer? But in order to tell you that, I have to take you back to Saturday afternoon, September 4th. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy, and it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus. Which, listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T, for 15% off. Enjoy, and when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. You may recall that Labor Day weekend 2021 began on Saturday, September 4th. On that day, it was cloudy, but not raining out in Lakeland, Florida, which was nice since according to weather.com, it had rained the three days prior and was looking to be raining for another few days, completely hampering the long weekend. On this Saturday, this day, 40-year-old Justice Gleason was outside of his home mowing the lawn while one of his kids, an 11-year-old daughter, was frolicking in the yard. Now, I don't know if she was actually frolicking, but I swear that's what my kids do outside. So that's what I envision her doing. Meanwhile, one of Justice's neighbors is helping out with Hurricane Ida by providing a first aid kit to an acquaintance by the name of Brian Riley. Brian Riley was collecting items to help out in the aftermath of Hurricane Ida, which if you recall, had some pretty devastating effects. 
Brian was with Justice's neighbor for roughly 25 minutes or so before departing. But as Brian was getting ready to leave, he saw Justice mowing the lawn. Brian approached Justice, who was completely unknown to him, and told him he needed to speak to his daughter, Amber, because God wanted him to save her as she intended to commit suicide. Justice looked around, probably looking for Ashton Kutcher and the punked video crew because the man just seemed so bizarre. Justice was like, no, we don't have anyone by the name of Amber living here. But Brian wouldn't let up. He insisted he needed to speak to Amber, and he said he wasn't going to leave until he saw the child. There must have been some sort of commotion outside because then a 62-year-old woman, she's a grandma, and it's unclear if she's Justice's mom or his mother-in-law or something else, but she comes out of Justice's house and she sternly told Brian that no one named Amber lived in the home. They threatened to call the police and Brian tells them, no, listen, no, no, you don't need to call the police. I am the cops for God. <laughs> what is wrong with this guy? So it's almost like he's bizarrely implying that he's God's security detail. Eventually, the threats to call police must have worked because Brian got into his truck and left. But the family was sufficiently spooked. So at 7.22 p.m., they called police to tell them about a strange person and a strange car in their area. And they were referring to the man who we now know to be Brian Riley. Police quickly respond and they're there within, I don't know, like six minutes. Justice and the family reiterate the story. The police search the area and after 22 minutes of not finding anything, they go on their way. And Justice, along with his family, that includes his girlfriend, who's 33 years old, their three-month-old son, his 11-year-old daughter, and the baby's grandma, they call it a day and they go to sleep. So just as a side note, the girlfriend, it's either his girlfriend or his wife, but the reports don't indicate which one it is. Well, unbeknownst to them, Brian Riley was about to commit the most heinous and senseless crime to rock Lakeland in ages. The following information was provided by Sheriff Grady, and he received this information via a confession from Brian Riley himself. But remember, he is innocent until proven guilty. These are all the details. Around 7 p.m.-ish, after Justice threatened to call the police, Brian got into his car to drive home. He lived in Brandon, Florida, which is about 36 miles or so from Justice's house. As he was driving, Brian said, that God told him to kill everyone in order to rescue this girl named Amber because Amber was a victim of sex trafficking. Brian immediately began to come up with his, quote, operations plan to kill everyone in that house, end quote. He went home and told his girlfriend of three years that God was talking to him and he told her all about Amber and he told her that he could communicate directly with God. The girlfriend looked at him like he was on something, and Brian stared back and was like, girl, you're a non-believer and I don't need that in my life. She then continued about her day while Brian locked himself in his man cave. At some point, the girlfriend went to sleep and as seen in surveillance footage at about one o'clock in the morning, Brian loaded up his truck and returned to Justice's house, which was about a 37-ish minute drive at, you know, one o'clock in the morning. So it wasn't like it was just around the corner, you know? For the next three hours or so, Brian did reconnaissance, and I'm air quoting here because those are his words, not mine. He takes a walk about Justice's property, noticing a mother-in-law structure around back. 
Then he began to lay out glow sticks from his car to the house and then around back. He later told police that he did this in order to have a quick exit should he need one. But the light path was also to assist Amber in leaving the house after he rescued her from sex trafficking. Now, mind you, Amber is not a real person, okay? So then Brian slashed the tires of two cars in the area. It's unclear if the cars were parked in the driveway or not, but he then doused one of the vehicles with gasoline and attempted to light it on fire to create a diversion. According to Brian, however, the flames quickly fizzled. But according to the first officer on scene, as described by Sheriff Grady, there was a vehicle on fire. So let's just go with that. There was a vehicle on fire. At this point, Brian puts on his armor like he was going into battle and he began his, quote, execution plan. Again, his words, not mine. He made his way first to the mother-in-law suite, which sounds like it's a detached structure. Mind you, he was now carrying at least three guns. He attempted to shoot through the door, but when that didn't work, he entered through a window. Inside was the 62-year-old grandmother who had threatened to call the police on Brian earlier. Now, she was face-to-face with him again, except this time, Brian didn't bother to ask any questions. He pointed the gun at her and shot until his magazine was empty. He then dropped the mag, and then according to him, he, quote, reset which I'm assuming just means he reloaded, almost like he's playing Call of Duty. At this point, Brian knew he needed to act fast as everyone had probably heard the gunfire. Brian went towards the main house, shot through the door and began to clear the hallway. And he began to clear each room as he walked through the house. According to the sheriff's press conference, Brian called this hallway, quote, the fatal tunnel. By this point, Justice had heard the gunshots He grabbed his 11-year-old daughter, his wife, and the baby, and they hid in the bathroom. Before Brian found the family, he spotted the family dog and he shot it to death. Brian then proceeded to the bathroom where he began to fight with the family that was trying to keep the gunman from entering. There was a brief struggle, then Brian shot at the door and that must have allowed him entry. Because then, as Justice and his girlfriend, who was holding the three-month-old baby boy, they are begging, no, They are pleading for their life, but Brian allegedly doesn't blink an eye before shooting them dead, including the baby. At this point, it appears to me from reading the court records that someone inside the home dialed 911. So this probably happened before the two adults were shot dead, right? And the operator actually records the sounds of the volleying gunfire, and then they hear Brian yelling. Now, the gunman is in the bathroom and the 11-year-old girl was cowering between the toilet and the cabinet when Brian yanked her out of her hiding spot and took her into the living room where he began to interrogate the little girl. He wanted to know where Amber was. He yelled, Amber, get up now, Amber. The little girl screamed, I'm not Amber. Brian, though, he was getting really mad now. He demanded to know where Amber was And then like a parent counting down, he began to count aloud, three, two, one, and then he mercilessly pulled the trigger, hitting the girl but not killing her. He did this countless more times. Brian then taunted the little girl. Do you know why I killed your parents, he asked? Because they were sex traffickers. But all the little girl could do at this point was cry and hold her wounds. 
And when she didn't give Brian what he wanted, he, quote, eliminated her, end quote. But the little girl wasn't dead, but she had the wherewithal to play dead. So she lay there ever so still, just 11 years old, and she later told police she prayed. Brian later confessed to the cops that before he chose to, quote, eliminate the little girl, he had asked God if an 11 or 12 year old could be involved in sex trafficking. And God said yes. So basically, in his own words, Brian did what needed to be done. Now, the next part is confusing because it differs from the narrative above that Justice, his girlfriend, and the baby were killed in quick succession in the bathroom. When the first responding officer arrived on scene, it was stated that Brian was outside, but he was unarmed. When Brian saw the police, he quick went inside and then the cops heard more gunshots. And this next part is the unclear part. But according to Sheriff Grady, once Brian retreated inside and shot more gunfire, police outside, they heard a woman scream and a baby whimper. This is also part of the affidavit, by the way. So this begs the question, were the mother and baby dead by the time police arrived on scene? According to the police affidavit, the woman was found dead in a closet, apparently. She had been hiding in there with the baby. She was not in the bathroom. So maybe she had been shot once before in the bathroom when, before cops had arrived. And then when Brian ran inside, he shot her again while she was in the closet, I guess, maybe, to ensure she was dead. I don't, I don't know. But regardless, whether she was shot in the bathroom or shot in a closet, she was hiding from this madman. Well, as soon as the cops heard the gunshots, the screams and the whimpers, they ran towards the house. What the cops didn't immediately realize, though, during the gun battle was that when they first engaged with Brian, one of the officer's bullets hit him. The bullet entered Brian's body through the side and went into his stomach, but only hit like the fatty part of the stomach. It did not actually enter the cavity. After Brian was hit, he retreated into the baby's nursery of all places. He attempted to treat his wound. This fool was conducting self-aid buddy care on himself. He put some quick clot on the wound. He then dropped his gun, his gear, and with his arms raised up to the sky, he surrendered to the police. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's Journey. June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today 
on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. So who the heck is this alleged gunman? According to the second press release held by the sheriff's office only hours after the quadruple murder, 33-year-old Brian Riley was a U.S. Marine veteran. He was a sharpshooter and he deployed to Iraq in 2008 and then deployed to Afghanistan in 2009 and 2010. And um, it's unclear if he had two separate deployments to Afghanistan. But either way, we know that he deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan. After he was honorably discharged from the Marine Corps, he went on to work security. He owned multiple weapons and did have a concealed carry license. He lived in Brandon, Florida at the time that the murders took place. And as I mentioned earlier, he dated his girlfriend for three years, although there's some sources that say four years. According to the sheriff, the girlfriend had been extremely cooperative. She says that the entire time they dated, she never saw Brian be violent or even threaten violence. She did admit that he suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and he did have depression. But besides seeing him depressed at times, she never saw anything else that might cause alarm. But she did admit that about a week before the shooting, Ryan had worked security at a church in Orlando, Florida. Now the sheriff refused to name the church. Well, Brian worked this security gig with a friend. And when Brian returned from the gig, according to his girlfriend, he started to act real weird, saying that he now had open communications with God. And, you know, it's like beyond just prayer, y'all. He would say that he could speak directly to God and he could hear God's voice. In fact, Brian's friend, who he had worked that church security with, he even commented that he was kind of happy that Brian was having a religious awakening. Now, those are my words, not his, but you get the picture. The girlfriend did add an interesting tidbit that Brian had told her in the days leading up to the quadruple murder. He told her that God had instructed him to assist with Hurricane Ida efforts, specifically getting supplies for victims. But in a bizarre act, Brian actually purchased roughly $1,000 worth of cigars as a, quote, relief present for Hurricane Ida victims. <laughs> That's so odd. But listen, that was all. That was all the information that she provided, or at least all the information that was relayed to the media. Meanwhile, at the scene, police found three weapons. Those all belonged to Brian as the family did not own any firearms, or at least they didn't find any in the home. At the time of the final press conference in this case on September 9th, investigators had preliminarily determined that Brian shot his weapons over 100 times that night, while the cops shot roughly 59 bullets in the gunfight at the end. Besides the statement by the girlfriend mentioning PTSD, police are not sure what, if any, mental health conditions Brian may have. Additionally, on his way to the hospital, Brian self-proclaimed that he had used meth before this incident, but the toxicology report had not been received yet. But there was something the sheriff's office was confident in saying. They were confident in saying that there was evidence of illegal steroid use. Which, listen, I found so fascinating because at one point during the press conference, Sheriff Grady showed a picture of Brian and he looked all roided up. His arms are huge, like the size of my head, and they are all veiny and just like popping. Now, my immediate thought when I saw this picture was this dude must be on steroids. And sure enough, that's what the sheriff said. And listen, I've heard of roid rage, but in this particular case, 
it seems like he was having more delusions, you know? This case shocks the conscious because it involves all types of victims that pull on our heartstrings. A newborn, a mother, an 11-year-old, a grandma, and a dog. Now, let me just take a second to tell you about Diogi, the family dog. I'm not even sure if I said that right, Diogi, but Diogi. No one has released what breed the dog is, except the sheriff did say it was a big dog. But something that I found truly sad was that Diogi was actually named after a Polk County police canine dog that was killed in action along with his handler back in 2006. And here is just a snippet of what happened to them. Almost 15 years before this tragic incident, on September 28, 2006, an officer made a traffic stop. When the car pulled over, the driver got out of the vehicle and took off on foot into some nearby woods. Just then, Deputy Sheriff Matt Williams arrived with Diogi, and they began to search the area for the guy who had run off. When they encountered the suspect, the suspect opened a volley of gunfire, hitting Deputy Williams eight times, killing him, and also hitting the dog and killing it. The other deputy was also shot, but he survived. Deputy Williams was not wearing his protective vest this day. After killing Deputy Williams, the gunman got away. The following day, he was tracked down by the SWAT team, and when he failed to follow commands and brandished a firearm, the suspect was shot and killed. Now, I don't know how long Justice and the family had Diogi, but I do think it very tragic how he lost his life to a criminal, just as the canine he was named after. According to the criminal complaint affidavit, Brian has been charged with four counts of first-degree murder, attempted murder, second-degree arson, armed burglary with assault and battery, shooting into a building, and seven counts of attempted first-degree murder on law enforcement. Another little tidbit that I found while doing research on this case was a story written in the Tulsa world. According to Miguel Rivera, who was one of Justice's neighbors, Immediately before the gunfire erupted that early morning, someone knocked on his sliding glass door. Miguel was sleeping and was startled awake. He then went to the door and didn't see anyone. But moments later, he heard the gunfire. Miguel now realizes that had he moved a little bit more quickly that morning to answer the random knock, he could be dead. So there is a lot to unpack in this case. I saw in the comments of the press conference, which is actually posted on the Polk County Sheriff's Office Facebook page, but people were commenting about Brian's PTSD and they questioned whether PTSD had caused him to do this. Some people commented pondering if the news coverage of the quick and somewhat botched Afghanistan exit that occurred only days before the shooting could have triggered Brian and could have caused him to snap. Now, the truth is, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that, and no one knows. But I think this brings up a great discussion point. So stay tuned, because as I said earlier, in a few weeks, I'm going to have a guest who will speak to these issues. And of course, for this case, we will see how it all plays out eventually when it gets to court. I do want to add, however, that there are tons of people, both veterans and non-veterans, who live with PTSD day in and day out. And these people do not commit violent crimes. So I will just leave it at that for now. 
For the foreseeable future, though, for this case, I think the first hurdle is going to be whether Brian Riley is competent to stand trial. Brian appears to have sang like a canary after he was Mirandized and waived his rights. And for legal competency, the question that will be posed is whether or not Brian Riley will be able to assist his attorneys in his defense at trial. And then there's the question of whether he was suffering from any mental defect. And listen, that's like a legal term of art. So please don't email me saying that's a terrible term. So the question will be, was he suffering from, quote, insanity during the commission of the offense that could have altered his reality? There's just so many things left to learn in this case. And so I will keep you posted primarily through the Facebook group and through my Facebook page. So I am always preaching about remaining vigilant. And unfortunately, in this case, this complete stranger struck when the entire family was defenseless in the middle of the night. This case is truly what nightmares are made of. My heart goes out to the entire family that was affected by this tragedy. The Polk County Sheriff's Office is actually accepting donations on behalf of the family and 100% of the money donated will go to the family. If you have been touched by this case and would like to donate to that 11-year-old little girl and to help the family pay for hospital expenses and whatnot, you can visit polksheriff.org donate and choose quadruple homicide victims from the Dropbox. You may be wondering why I never named the victim mom, the victim grandma, the baby, or the daughter. And that is because of Florida's Marcy's Law. It's a crime victim law that allows victims and their next of kin the option of keeping their names private from the media. In this case, all of the victims, except for Justice Gleason, have requested to keep their names private. While their names are easy to discover on the internet, I have chosen to respect the family's wishes, as I think everyone else should. When I learned the details of this case, it rocked me for a few days. I could not fathom the fear that this family felt, the fear that that little girl felt, the terror. And until we learn the conclusion of this tragedy, I will leave you all with a few of Sheriff Grady's words that really just kind of made me think. He said, quote, this guy was a war hero. He fought for his country. Now he's a cold-blooded killer, end quote. And this statement just devastates my heart. You can find me on social on Instagram at Military Murder Podcast and make sure you join the Facebook group where I will continue to update you on this case. You can find the Facebook group by visiting facebook.com slash groups slash military true crime. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and we have various fan club members who help produce the show and I want to name them all here today. Our executive producers are Falcon 13, Nicole G, Alicia H, Tina S, and Ryan R. Our associate producers are Latoya B, Megan W, Bob W, Lynn R, Crystal LB, Stacy M, Felicia R, Lynn MH, Alyssa D, Margaret S, Valerie S, ZB, Lori C, Heather B, Elizabeth, Louis E, and Ricardo G. And last, but most definitely not least, our assistant producers are Katie K, Megan, Jenny M, Rose Ann B, Emily W, Gabe, Heather H, Turquoise J, Carl P, Melissa Z, Mary G, Texas Grandma, 
Rebecca W, Loet J, Blanca D, Ruby S, Andrew R, Heidi H, Tiana R, Gray F, Leisha Q, Christina M, Mr. JG, Madeline Q, Samantha, Stu by 0331, Yesenia A, Rain, Not a Bow, Jade R, Christopher J, Kylie B, and Shanice R. Thanks to everyone who also supports the show at the $5 and $1 levels. I would not be able to continue the production of this show without the help of all of your generous souls. This show's music was created by Tyops. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. Shh, let's work another podcast.